This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Well, some of you were probably expecting Scott to be here this morning, and I was too, but Thursday he told us, hey, I got a little scratchy throat, I'll probably be fine, I feel fine. Four in the morning, a text says, I don't know, bro, not sure. 6.30 in the morning, I'm out. Okay, I guess I'm in. So here we are. Scott was going to preach a message from Jeremiah chapter 9, so I don't want to steal what he was going to do, but I thought Michael's already planned the service around Jeremiah and the things that are going on there, so let's stick with Jeremiah and we'll preach out of that book. But I won't mess with chapter 9 where Scott's going to be. So maybe next week Tony will be sick and Scott can be told last minute that he's preaching. But he'll be ready because his message is ready to go. Well, as we begin, uh, we'll be primarily looking at Jeremiah chapter 2 initially and then several other passages. But let me ask you this question as we start. Anybody suffering today? You don't have to raise your hand. Just anybody suffering have you ever suffered before in the past? Uh, do you anticipate that maybe in the future you might suffer a little bit? Um, probably yes, maybe, and yes should be your answers to those questions. Uh, we all experience that in one way or another, sometimes in multiple ways. Well, Jeremiah is a person who knew suffering. He's called the weeping prophet. And one of the things that we see in Jeremiah is that no matter what happened to him, no matter what he went through, that he was committed to living for God, uh, no matter what the cost. And I just want to encourage us with that thought today and touch on some of the things that he shared, that, that we see in, his, in his, his book, in his life, and his words. So let me just begin by, as you see in your notes, I'm going to start with just some background, some information about the book of Jeremiah, about him, and a little bit about the overview of the book, so you get kind of a flavor of what Jeremiah's life was like, what his ministry was like in particular. And let me begin by reading just a few verses from chapter 1, starting in verse 4. <coughs> we read these words. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So as we begin to look at Jeremiah, we, we get to see how God called him into ministry, how God appointed him to be the person who would have the words of God given to him to be spoken from his mouth to God's people and to the nations. 
Because Jeremiah prophesied not only to God's people, but also to those who were not God's people. And he was set apart from before he was even born for this task, for this specific task. Now, Jeremiah was probably in his late teens, maybe early 20s, when this call was made on his life. That's why he said, hey, I'm, I'm a youth. Why don't you get one of the older, wiser guys to do this? God said, no, I'm calling you, and I will be with you, and I will protect you, and you will speak my words that I will give to you. And Jeremiah did what God called him to do. Jeremiah was faithful to the task given to him. The book of Jeremiah are, are Jeremiah's words uh, dictated to someone named Baruch. We see that from a few passages that are in the letter, in the book itself. But it's Jeremiah's words that are being copied, being spoken, that we read. They're not always in chronological order. That can make it sometimes difficult to follow. But for the most part, there's a commonality that we see in the book of Jeremiah that, that we can clearly perceive and pull away from uh, much wisdom. <clears throat> As Jeremiah is preaching, the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen. The kingdom had split into two northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, the northern kingdom had already fallen, and the southern kingdom is on its way down. They're soon to be conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and go into captivity for a while. So they're, they're in, their, in their bad times. They may not always feel like it, but they are. And as, as we begin in, in verse 4 there of chapter 1, and as we see throughout the, the text of, of the book of Jeremiah, there's a phrase that appears 53 times, the word of the Lord came to me, the word of the Lord came to me. That phrase we see about 250 times in the Old Testament. The majority of them, 40% of those times, are Jeremiah 53 times and Ezekiel 60 times. So it's important for us to know that this is God speaking very directly, very clearly to his people through both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who were contemporaries for a, a time in their ministries. So we have to approach this in, this in the same way we would the rest of Scripture, that this is God's word to us through his prophet, something we ought to pay attention to. And the book of Jeremiah is full of condemnation, and judgment, and rebuke, and contempt, just the things you want to read before going to sleep at night. Probably good stories for your kids. Send them to, send them to sleep with a little judgment tale here and there. Just make them think before they wake up in the morning. Do that thing that they're thinking about doing. Maybe make them think twice. But as we read it, it can be a book that can be kind of like, oh, this isn't really inspiring because I don't want to keep reading about all this judgment. Because sometimes what happens is we relate to the people that God is speaking to and we kind of feel that weight of judgment or that sense of judgment on us. And so Jeremiah can be one of those books that we can easily avoid because it's just too depressing, discouraging. Who wants to read that? Let's just read the Gospels and read the happy passages about Jesus. And sometimes we can avoid passages like this, but if we do that, if we, if we were to neglect Jeremiah, we would also neglect the good things that are in that book, the things that are, are very positive and, and affirming of God and his character and his love for his people 
and what he has done and what he's promised for his people. We miss all that. We have to take the, have to take the bad with the good. Because what do they say? If there's no bad news, there's no good news. So we've got to see that as well. There's a constant connection that you can see if you read through the book of Jeremiah of blessing and security, which is something all of us like. We, we like to be blessed and we like to be secure. There's a connection there that's very clear through this whole book of that being connected to a faith in God that is being lived out. Aside from that, there's no reason for blessing and security to be a part of our life. But with that, a faith in God that's living and active, there's every reason for blessing and security. Ultimately, we know this side of, of Scripture, this side of the cross, that that's found in Christ and in Christ alone. So that's kind of the overall introduction to the book of Jeremiah. And then your next section in your notes, um, I just want to share with you that the, the book as a whole is broken down into about five main sections. And those sections are in, in first chapter 1 through 20 is a section that is Jeremiah's prophecies that are happening during the kingship of Josiah, uh, Jehoahaz, and Jehoiakim. Jehoahaz was about three months in there, so a lot of times people don't even remember him. Uh, the second section, chapters 21 through 39, are prophecies that Jeremiah made during the kingship of Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. Jehoiachin also had only about three months in there too. So there were a, a total of five kings over Judah during, Jeho during Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Josiah was a good king. Here are the words how some scholars describe the other four. Dreadful, degenerate, frightful, and foolish. Those are ways that the other four kings are described. So you kind of get a sense of where the kingdom is going. And you can understand why they're about to fall. Because after Josiah, who was a good king, they just started falling off. And the kings from the top down, started walking away from God. In the third section, third main section, chapters 40 through 45, Je uh, Jeremiah is prophesying after the fall of Jerusalem. This is, uh, so we see that happen. We see that occurrence happen in the midst of the book of Jeremiah where, where Jerusalem falls and they are, they are taken. And if you want to read more about that, you can refer to the book of Lamentations. That's uh, believed to be written after the fall of, of Jerusalem. And we see just more of Jeremiah's heart poured out in that book. Then the, the next section, chapters 46 through 51, is where we see prophecies that are now moved outside of Judah and prophecies are made against the heathen nations, the nations that are around them, and God condemns them as well. And then the last section is chapter 52, just kind of by itself is a a recap of the fall of Jerusalem, and it's basically the same chapter that you would read in 2 Kings 25. They're, they're basically the same, and some scholars believe that this was just kind of added on from Kings as a, another just re-emphasis of what happened to Jerusalem uh, when they fell. As you dig a little bit more deeply into the, uh, the text, the chapters of Jeremiah, if you want to break them down a little bit further and in, in a little different way, you look at chapters 2 through 29. Um, this you might want to jot these down if you want to. 2 through 29 are 14 messages of condemnation. 
I asked the first hour, they weren't excited for this idea, but how about Tony just does that 14 weeks of just condemnation of Grace Bible Church for a while? Could be fun, right? We'd have a great time with that, and probably attendance would dwindle by the third or the fourth one, and who knows who he'd be, be preaching to at the end. But that's what Jeremiah brought to God's people. 14 messages of condemnation. But God in his faithfulness, remember he's the one putting the words in Jeremiah's mouth, God in his faithfulness does not leave them there. And in the next few chapters, 30 to 33, are three wonderful messages of restoration. So we see the condemnation come, but then we see the opportunity for redemption, for hope, for restoration to happen. God does not ever leave us without that. Then in chapters 34 to 45, we see three more messages about the fall of Judah specifically that are given by Jeremiah. And then the last chapters, 46 through, 40, through 51, are nine messages to nine different heathen nations. Nine messages of condemnation towards the other, the other ungodly nations that are around them. So as you, as you kind of work your way through Jeremiah, you get a sense that, man, there's just a lot of really condemning things that are going on and happening and so the question we, we ought to ask is, why? What's the reason for that? What's causing that? Easy to, easy to see that, oh, heathen nations, they get some condemnation messages, sure, but why is Israel getting that? Why so much on them? And that leads us into really the main, main part of our message today as we begin here is uh, going to be in chapter 2. What are the two main problems that are going on that bring about this kind of response of condemning words from God. What's happening? What is Israel doing that is, that is bringing this about, that's making this happen? And these are the two things I want you to see, but let me read first from chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. You guys follow along with me if you want to. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, and how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate it, ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land. My heritage made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. Or cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. 
Has a nation changed its gods even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what we see happening, what has brought about this this book that is filled with so much judgment and condemnation is Israel began to defile God. They began to walk away from him. The, the shepherds, the teachers, the priests, they were all leaving God. They were preaching other things. They were teaching other things. They were leading the people astray. And the people did not have discernment and did not resist, but they followed. They followed these leaders. All of them had forgotten the word and the works of the Lord. And that's an important thing for us to always keep in mind. I've mentioned that before in sermons, and I think it's such a valuable tool for us to keep right in front of us all the time, is to always remember the word and the works of the Lord. As we look at at the history of God's people, what is it that causes Israel and others to fall into sin so often? Forgetting those two things. How many times did Israel have to be sent to captivity because of that? Often. And what, what happens as they come out of that captivity, as they spend some time held by another nation and crying out to God and God hears them and brings them back and brings them out and rescues them, what do they do so often first? They open the book and they remind themselves of the truths of God's word, the promises that are found in God's word, and the mighty works that God has done. And you and I would be well served to be people who remember his word and remember his works all the time because they're easy to forget sometimes. We can get caught up in just the busyness of life and think we know better than God does. And we never do. But his word and his works must be remembered. And what what Israel began to do as a people, as the, their leaders were, following, were, were falling away from God, the people began to fall away. And the two sins that they committed that, that the Lord professes to them is, one is, you have forsaken me. You have forsaken me. You have left me. You have turned your back on me. That was their first sin, first thing that they did. And the second thing, and that led to this, was, they began to then follow other idols. The Lord says that you, I was was the fountain of living water for you. I'm the one who gave you life. And it was fullness of life, but you made your own cisterns up. You made up your own wells. And you put your own water in them, and those cisterns, they don't hold water. There's no living water found in them. They're broken. They're useless. But that's what you've begun to worship. What is that? What are cisterns? Well, they can be good things in our life that become dominant or ruling things for us. They can become hopes and dreams that we may have that become the things that grab our heart and and rule over us because we must get those in order to be happy or satisfied. 
Sometimes they're not good things. Sometimes cisterns are bad things that should not even have a place in our heart or life. But we kind of keep them hidden over here, keep them a little secret over there. Nobody really knows anyway. But they become things that, that rule us. And we ultimately start serving them and not serving God. We turn our back on God as Israel did. And I think that what we see in verse 19 is the foundational problem that led to these two sins. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord, of, Lord God of hosts. That's the thing I think is underlying that led to them forsaking God and following after other idols, is they lost the fear of God. Not just being afraid of him, it's not, that's not the only meaning of the word fear, but there's a general awe and respect and honor that is also associated with fearing something or fearing someone that we see in Scripture. And that fear is ultimately and only truly to be ascribed to God. And God says, you, you've lost that. You don't honor me. You don't hold me in awe. You, you don't bow before me. And I think that's what led them to forsake him. Because if God's not that big a deal, why do we need to follow him? If he's only one of the big deals... Well, I follow him a little bit, but I've got other things that are big deals that must be followed then too. And other things fight for, the, fight for affection. They fight for honor. They fight for glory. They fight for our awe. And they want to be ruling us as well when that place is only reserved for God. And we can be just like Israel. That's why I think we have so many stories about Israel. And it's easy for us to sit in judgment of them and go, man, these guys are dumb. Why do they keep walking away? Why do they keep doing what they're doing? And God's telling us, this is you, people. This is you. You're just like them. Man, praise God for Christ, huh? Without him, we would all be lost, Israel and us. In your next section in your notes, I want to just share with you some of the some of the results that we see, some of the fruit of that kind of sin, of losing your fear of God, forsaking Him, following other things, other idols that you've allowed to be in your life that can become controlling things, things that you worship, things that you seek after. If you do that, it's going to show in your life in different ways. And the book of Jeremiah is filled with illustrations of this. I just want to pull a few from chapter 2. I'm not going to read through the passage, but from chapter 2, verse 20 to 37, if you want to jot that down, read that later. Um, that's where these are primarily found. I've, I've given you about nine here that I just want to point out that are results of sin in Israel's life that God condemns them for as he sees their sin affecting their life, affecting how they live and how they act. And the first one that he says in chapter 2, verse 20 is, you don't want to serve. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. They have no desire to serve God, to serve in the way that God wants them to serve, to serve his people. They don't want to serve. They've become a people that want to be served. 
That's why they've left God, and it's why they're seeking other gods. Maybe these other gods will satisfy. Maybe these broken cisterns will fill us up. Maybe they'll give us what we want. Maybe they will blank, 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 blank. The second thing that we see in them as a, as a, a quality trait is in verse, 20, uh, verse 223, chapter 2, verse 23, is that they deny being sinful. Hey, we don't have any sin. We're not sinful. Don't, no, we're, we're good. We're God's people. We're holy. Come on. Look at the nations. They're really bad. And then two verses later, after God calls them out on that, they say, hey, well, well okay, maybe we're sinful, but we're only human. We're only human. We can't help it. Yeah, sure, we've gone after these foreign gods, but, you know, now we've done it, so we're just going to have to keep doing it. Has that ever been an excuse for you? Don't raise your hand or anything, unless you want to. If you want to, we can talk afterwards. But has, has that ever been <laughs> has that ever been an excuse that we use? Ah, I'm, just, I'm only human. I can't help it. It's just, it's just in me. It's just how I'm wired. It's just my nature. It's just this. It's, it's, you know, oh, that's my excuse. And that becomes a, a reason for me not addressing the sin in my life. Like, well, I, I can't help it. I'm just made this way. You know where we get that from? We get that from our spiritual, our, our original mom and dad, Adam and Eve. We get it from them. Think about their confrontation by God in the garden. Think about it. Good for us to remember it all the time. God comes to them, and he finds them in their sin, and what does Eve do? Hey, hey, the serpent. The serpent, he's the one that tempted me. He's the one that, and, and who made the serpent? So there's an indirect, God, you made that serpent, didn't you? That's indirectly in there. But she blames the serpent. Adam's more bold. Adam's more direct, isn't he? Some of you guys, you know what he said. That woman that you gave me, <laughs> he's just direct. He's totally open and upfront with his blame game. It's Eve and it's you. And we do that sometimes too, don't we? We'll blame somebody else. You know, if I just had a better spouse, if my kids would just, if my mom and dad, if my boss, if my neighbor, Larry, <laughs> And we can just blame and blame and blame and blame and blame. If my pastor would only preach nicer, I'd be a better Christian. He's preaching all this Jeremiah condemnation. Of course I'm in a bad mood. We can blame pretty easily. And it's been in people from the very beginning. To not own our sin. And we need to own our sin. That's what, what Israel's doing. They, they do that as well. In chapter 2, verse 27, we also see them with the attitude of wanting their gods, including God, the one true God, to serve them, not rule them. That's the genie in the bottle kind of worship of God. Hey God, I'll call you when I need you. I'll call you out here. Here's my problem. Can you please fix that for me? Okay, can you jump back in now? Thanks very much. I'll call you next time I need you. That's that kind of mentality. I, I, I want you to be here to serve me not to rule me. And that was Israel's attitude. Sometimes we can even fall to that. 
is, God, don't tell me what to do. Just fix my problems. Just make me happy. You said you want me to be blessed. If I follow Jesus, I'll be blessed, so bless me. And we, we accuse God almost because he's not doing what we want him to do. Well, who are you and I to tell him what to do? But that was Israel's attitude. See, when we, when we forsake God, when we fall, fall away from him, we start chasing other idols. Sometimes idol is just me, itself. I want what I want. I want to serve me. Then that's what starts to rule us. That's what starts coming out of our mouth. And we begin to take the place of God. I want to rule. I don't want anybody else to rule me. I want to rule. And you're there to serve me. Man, that's how Jesus came to earth, isn't it? Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Next time he comes to rule, can't wait for that one. In chapter 2, verse 29, what Israel does is they blame God again. They're like, hey, God, this is, this is on you. This is not on us. And again, they resort to that, that same type of excusing of their sin. God, this is your fault. It's your fault. 2.31, uh, Jeremiah reiterates that this is a manifestation of them forgetting God and leaving God. And that's a pattern that will be, that will be repeated in a person's life who is forsaking God, is that you will continually see them over and over making choices that are apart from God, that will draw them away from God, not push them to God. So that'll be a pattern that we see in Israel through the book of Jeremiah. It's a pattern we see through the Old Testament in them. It's a pattern we, can, we ought to watch for in us because we can do the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 35, they essentially have an attitude where they say, there's no need for God. We don't need you, God. Can you imagine saying that? We don't need you? And the implication that, that many scholars think that is in that, that uh, statement of not needing God is that there's no sin that we need to deal with. Because much of Israel's relationship to God was for them to have a way to deal with their sin and be right with God. So if they're saying, we don't need you, there's, a, there's a, an idea behind that that they're saying, I don't have to deal with my sin. It's not that big a deal. It's not there. You know, as they've said already, they don't feel like they're sinful. Whatever sins are there, they're just real small anyway. God can probably just overlook them. That's an attitude that becomes prevalent as well. They just they don't have a need for God. You, you probably all know people that feel that way. They just don't feel like they need God. You know, hey, that's a nice crutch for you. Yeah, if you need that in your life, that's great, but I don't. I'm pretty strong on my own. Can handle it, can handle life, can handle everything it throws at me. A lot of people feel that way. And they feel, they feel no sense of their own sin and the need to be right with a holy God who will one day judge them. And a couple others that I just want to point out. There's, there's so many in the book of Jeremiah. They're, they're really, it's really filled with different character qualities that will be a result in our lives because of sin. But a couple others I want to point out. One from chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. And in those few verses, there are three qualities that come out of greed, deceit, and shamelessness that we see as a part of how Israel is, how, how Judah is acting in the midst of God's condemnation. Is they're greedy? They just want more. And that's why they're serving these other gods. They want these other gods to give them more, give them more, make us more happy, make us more happy, make us more satisfied. 
keep pouring water in the cistern. It keeps flowing out because they're broken. They won't hold water. It's not everlasting life. It's not everlasting water. And they're never satisfied. But they're greedy for more. They're deceitful in their ways. They're not even honest with themselves. They're not honest with God. They're not honest with one another. And they have no shame about it. They don't care that they're walking in sin. They don't care. They're unashamed about it at all. That's a, that's a dangerous place to get to when you're living in sin and you have no concern about it at all. You have no shame about it at all. The Bible warns us many times about that. And lastly, another character quality we see, chapter 18, verse 12, is that they follow their own plans. They follow their own ways, not God's. And ultimately, that's what, that's what forsaking God is doing. You are, you are saying, God, I see your plan. I see your ways. I reject it. I want my own. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to run my own race over here, going my own way. And sometimes we can even have that attitude. I know what the Bible says, but. You ever heard anybody say that? I have. I know what the Bible says, but. And the but means I know better and I know different and I'm not going to follow that. We should just say, I know what the Bible says, exclamation point. And just leave it there. Well, we, we should follow it too, not just know what it says, but follow what it says too. All of these qualities and, and more that we see through the book of Jeremiah, they can all be in us. They can all be ours. We can struggle with all of them. And they all should be little warning signs for us that we're maybe on that road to forsake. Maybe we're on that road to follow other little gods, little broken cisterns. That maybe there's something in our life that is controlling us or wanting to control us too much or at all. And we need to catch those things by the grace of God and allow him to help us to get back on track. Those two main sins of forsaking God, following other idols, under, underneath the, the lack of the fear of God lead, to God, lead God to respond to Israel. Your next section in your notes, God's twofold response to the two main sins of Israel. And there's bad news and there's good news in the book of Jeremiah. Can't have, can't have good news without the bad news, right? We hear that often in regards to the gospel itself, that there isn't any good news without bad news. But the bad news comes, and it comes hard, and it comes often, and it's stated very, very clearly, very, very many times throughout the book of Jeremiah. And it's judgment and condemnation and discipline that is coming from the Lord to his people. There are many, many warning passages. There are uh, different analogies that Jeremiah uses, that God gives to Jeremiah to use to, to show different things. There are five main warning prophecies that are given to Judah that begin in chapter 13. So I want to turn there and just look at the first one, Jeremiah chapter 13, if you want to turn there, uh, verses 1 through 11. And I want to read that and just talk a little bit about the, the bad news, the judgment that God brings on his people. Chapter 13, thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist. 
and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of a rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I command you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. That's the first main warning passage that Jeremiah declares of these, this set of five here. They would not listen to God. They would not listen to him. Now this, this little task that the Lord had for Jeremiah to do, get, get this loincloth, wear it for a little while, take it off, go to the Euphrates, bury it. The Euphrates was about a two-week walk for him. From if, if he's where we believe he was, it's about 14, 15-day journey if you're walking about 20 miles a day. So he had him walk, couple weeks, go hide it, go back. And after many days, he says, hey, remember that loincloth? Yeah. Why don't you walk back and get it? Okay. <laughs> he walks back and he gets it. Doesn't complain at all about the walk. He just does what the Lord tells him to. God ever tell you to walk 20 miles a day for two weeks? He probably has in different ways. You ever been reluctant to walk it? I have. Sometimes you go through things you just don't want to go through. Like, really? Do I? I mean, God, you could have had me hit it, hide it here. Could have had me stay there for a couple weeks and dig it up later. Could have made life a little easier for me. Is, is that what we're expecting from God, to make life a little easier for us? Is that what we're expecting? Well, the Bible says we'll be blessed. Well, you are. You are blessed with every heavenly, heavenly blessing that God has in Christ. You have that already. Why are you complaining about a 20-day, 15, you know, 20-mile, 15-day walk? Why are you complaining about that? Well, because it's not fun. I have a car. <laughs> I could just take that. God said walk. Can I take my camel? No, walk. Uh, Uber? <laughs> no, don't have it back then. Sorry. You have to walk. See, sometimes we, we just want the easy way out. We want things to be easy. We want things to be nice. We want things to be simple. We want things to go the way we want them to go. God just doesn't do that all the time. You know what's 
what's funny is sometimes he does have them go the way we want them to go. And then we get spoiled. We're like, well, shouldn't that happen all the time then? I'm blessed by God. Why shouldn't it go all that, that way all the time? It'd be easy to fall into that trap of thinking that. I know most of you don't. So judgment comes to Israel. Keep in mind, as, as he says that they're walking away from him, that they are following their own evil ways. What has happened is their, their heart has drifted from God. They're following their own heart, their own desires. And what does is, what is God's word from Jeremiah tell us about the heart? Chapter 17, verse 9, tells us that it's wicked, it's evil, no one can understand it. It, it will deceive you. It is not Disney heart. Disney tells you follow your heart all the time. Other things tell you follow your heart all the time. Books are written about it. Your friends probably, oh, just follow your heart. You won't make a bad decision if you just follow your heart. Because your heart is always going to tell you the truth. Yeah, like it did about that person that you fell in love with and then broke up with them because they were, turned out to be a jerk. You, you were following your heart initially. And then your heart got wise and your brain kicked in. and like, uh, paying attention here, heart? Like, yeah, I got it. We're out. Because your heart's deceitful. Your heart is wicked. That's what the Bible tells us. But the world tells you, follow your heart. And we see the result of Israel following their heart, not God's heart here. So any kids out here, don't follow your heart. Don't listen to Disney. The princesses, what happened? Oh, it, but they get the dress and they get the prince and everything's happily ever after. No, it's not. They don't talk about the sin of the household that happens later. They're lying to you. Probably spoiled Disney for some of you adults too. Good. Well, thankfully, God does not leave them there, nor does he leave us there. A second response from God, in addition to judgment and discipline and condemnation and rebuke, is restoration. Restoration promise of redemption, the promise of hope that is found, that is in Scripture. In chapter 13, that little story that I read, the, the Hebrew word that is used for the loincloth clinging to a man and I made Israel to cling to me, that word cling is a, a great word that means to stick to, to adhere to, and a, a, a better part of that definition, I think, is to catch by pursuit, to catch something by pursuing it. I think that's a great picture of what we need to be doing to God and with God. God has made us to chase after him, to pursue him and to catch him, to stick to him, to cling to him, to hold on to him above and beyond everything else. And that's, that's a good picture for us to have in our mind of how we ought to be living as believers, as, as Christians, is we need to be clinging to God, grabbing onto him, chasing after him, pursuing him until we catch him. And that is what can happen because of God's restoration. Let me give you some passages I want to read from in regards to this. First one is this, chapter 3, uh, verses 11 to 18. 
chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. So right after, this is right after chapter 2, right? Right after all that mess I just read about chapter 2 and all the things that it causes in people, the very next chapter, God gives Jeremiah these words. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. Now listen to these words. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. Only, I, will not, I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I give your fathers for a heritage. That is a promise not only of God's physical promise to Israel, but of his spiritual promise to his children. You've fallen from me. You've walked away. You've forsaken me. But I'm going to come after you. And I'm going to gather you. And I'm going to put you in my city. And all the nations will be around looking at you. What happened there? And there won't be a need for the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody will care about that. We get a little picture of, of heaven there. Don't need that anymore. The Lord's going to be in the midst. Restoration is available to those who will simply admit their guilt. Say, I've I have. I've rebelled against you, God. And I need you. A second passage. And, and Jeremiah has many passages like these. I encourage you, if you ever want to spend a, a good chunk of time reading about condemnation, but then good things, look for these pockets of redemptive messages that come. Another one is in chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. This one is a, a great picture of Christ. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. See, no evil deed goes unpunished. Something for us to remember, because sometimes we feel like, man, everybody just gets away with everything. Politicians, people in our jobs, neighbors down the street, celebrities, whoever it is. Sometimes we can just feel like, man, they just get away with everything. They never, they never get what's due them. 
God says, hey, you uh, scattered my people. You have not attended to them. Guess what? I'm going to attend to you. Justice belongs to the Lord. We have to believe that or we can be really discouraged in this world. Every sin will be meted out. Every sin will be addressed. Every one of them. Have confidence in that. And it may, you may not see it in this life. You may not see it here. But it will happen. Because I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. All of my people, I'm bringing all of them back. All of them. Not one will be missing. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, speaking of Christ here, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's a picture and a promise of Christ right there. So in the, in the midst of this condemning book, hope comes splashing in. It comes shattering sin's effects. And God says, I'm still going to be faithful to my people. We can turn our backs on God. We can forsake him. But what's the promise we have? He will not forsake his own. You have forsaken me, but I will not forsake you. And if we are God's, we are his permanently. And even our sin will not pull us out of his grasp. We might be trying really hard to get out sometimes, but we're not even strong enough to get out. Last one I want to share with you. Chapter 31, verses 31 to 43. Chapter 31, verses 31 to 43. It's another beautiful picture of what's to come. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That means there's no evangelism going on. You're not, you're not telling people, hey, you need to know Jesus. Because everybody will know him, he says. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's a great picture, isn't it? See, that is, that is hope amidst the condemnation. That is a, a chance at restoration and redemption because of God's work, 
not because of Israel's. Israel is doing nothing to deserve that. They're doing nothing to deserve that, but God is declaring what's going to happen. He points to this hope, and that hope, despite the greatness of the sin, is part of what sustains Jeremiah in his task. Remember, Jeremiah is preaching. He's prophesying for 40 to 50 years. He died when he was about 70. Let's take this now to the next section. Jeremiah persevered. And he persevered no matter what. That's where I want to connect us to this, the idea and the title, just following the Lord no matter what. Through 40 to 50 years of Jeremiah prophesying, some of you know the story. No one listened to him. No one They didn't listen. They did not respond. They did not repent. And many in the world today would say that Jeremiah was totally a failure. Jeremiah, you should get a different job. You're not good at this one. You don't talk well. You can't convince people. You can't get them to follow you. You need to go like serve burgers somewhere because you're not good at this. That's how the world would view him. God would not view him that way. God is the one who gave Jeremiah all the words that he spoke. God would view Jeremiah as successful, as faithful, as doing what God had called him to do. But nobody listened. God knew that would happen. And he still called Jeremiah to preach, to prophesy, to speak his word to people that would not listen because of their own stubborn hearts. Jeremiah endured many trials throughout this book. I want to highlight some of the main ones for you just quickly. First one is the threat of death. First big one, chapter 11. They just wanted to kill him. Jeremiah, we're tired of you. we just like to get rid of you, have you go away. Chapter 15, we see him really suffer loneliness and isolation, something I'm sure none of you have ever felt. Chapter 15, he's beaten and put in stocks, publicly out there to be mocked, spit on, hit, whatever happens, people that are out in the stocks in the public. If you're out in the stocks, that means you did something bad, so people treat you bad as they walk by. Chapter 26, we see him get arrested. He's really starting to get on people's nerves. They've got to do something. Just get him out of here. They put him away in prison. Constantly, there's the challenge of evil shepherds, false teachers, false prophets. Chapter 28, one of the main challenges comes from one of the false prophets. Just telling people, don't listen to this guy. Listen to me. He's crazy. I've got your best interests in mind. Isn't that what people are going to tell you if they're a false prophet? I know what you need. I've got it for you. Don't worry. These guys over here, they're crazy. Don't go to Grace Bible Church. They don't know what they're talking about. They just, Bible, 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 Bible. We're all about love, peace, joy. Just want you to be happy. Isn't that what life's about? That's, that's how they come at us. That's how they come at people all the time. There's no good news without the bad news. Chapter 37, they beat him again. And they throw him in prison again. Chapter 38, that wasn't bad enough. They had to now cast him into a miry pit and leave him down there with no food and no water. Through the whole book, he's just rejected. 
by God's people. This is God's spokesperson rejected for decades by God's people. Now, I don't, I don't know what would happen if all of you guys just stopped listening to Tony. He'd probably keep preaching. We'd make him. I'm not getting up there anymore. They don't listen. <laughs> but you know what? He might stop. I might stop. We'd all be tempted to stop. Like, you guys don't want to listen? Okay, find somebody else. But Jeremiah didn't stop. He was faithful. Faithful to the end. And when, when he and Paul met, I'm sure that Paul just said, hey, slight momentary afflictions, huh, Jerry? Because that's what Paul 